Ave Prisima. Uh, today we'll go through the gospel line by line, adding commentary as we go. As usual, uh, the quotes are uh, edited, cut and pasted. We'll rely principally on the work of Dr. Tim Gray with some excerpts from other Bible commentaries. Be too tedious to cite them all in the sermon. So let's get started. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's gospel, the parable of the prodigal son, is found in chapter 15 of the gospel of St. Luke. Our Lord tells this story while he's sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And that's, that's an act which brought great consternation to the scribes and Pharisees. We'll start then by briefly acquainting ourselves with the scribes and Pharisees. Then we'll put the parable in its scriptural context. And then we'll turn to the parable itself. So the scribes. Alfred Eiersheim, he's a Jew who in the 1800s converted, became an Anglican uh, priest and professor at Oxford, describes the Jewish scribe of our Lord's time, and I quote, The scribe is the rabbi, the master. He expects full explanations and respectful demeanor. He is the lawyer, the divine aristocrat, among the vulgar herd of rude and profane country people who know not the law and are cursed. The ultimate authority in all questions of faith and practice, he is the teacher of the law. Although generally appearing in company with the Pharisees, he is not necessarily one of them. For they represent a religious party, while he has a status and holds an office. In short, he is the sage, whose honor is to be great in the future world. Each scribe outweighed all the common people, who must accordingly pay him every honor. Nay, they were honored of God himself and their praises proclaimed by the angels, and in heaven also, each one of them would hold the same rank and distinction as on earth. Such was to be the respect paid to their sayings. They were to be absolutely believed, even if they were declared to be at the right, that to be at the right hand was at the left, and vice versa. Close quote, Albert Eidersheim. So at this time, the scribe, the sage, was the ultimate authority in questions of faith and morals. His authority was such that the people were obliged to, to believe and do whatever he said, to the point that if a sage told him that something, it was his, that his right hand was actually his left hand, it was still to be ascended to. That's a little background on the scribes. The Pharisees. We'll start with quotations from authors favorable to the Pharisees. The Jewish Virtual Library quote, tells us, quote, The Pharisees are the spiritual fathers of modern Judaism. Their main distinguished characteristic was a belief in an oral law that they claimed God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai along with the Torah. Now, we certainly don't believe that. Um, this oral tradition was codified and written down centuries later in what is known as the Talmud. Now, the Talmud are the religious books that, uh, that modern rabbinic Judaism relies on. So the Pharisees are the spiritual fathers of modern Judaism. The Jewish encyclopedia gives us more details, telling us the Pharisees were, quote, scrupulous observers of the law as interpreted by the scribes. The Pharisees formed a brotherhood, admitting only those who pledged themselves to the strict observance of Levitical purity, who pledged themselves to the scrupulous payment of tithes, 
He pledged himself to the avoidance of closer association with the Amharids. The Amharids were the country people who knew not the law and were viewed as being cursed. A true Pharisee observed the same degree of purity in his daily meals as did the priest in the temple. Wherefore, it was necessary he should avoid all contact with the Amharites. Again, those are the country people who don't know the law, and they're, at least according to the Pharisees, and are viewed as being cursed. They added new restrictions to the biblical law in order to keep people at a safe distance from forbidden ground. As they termed it, they made a fence around the law. Thus, they forbade the people to drink wine or eat with the heathen in order to prevent associations which might lead either to intermarriage or idolatry. The Pharisees claimed the same authority for the decisions of their scribes as for the biblical law, even in the case of error. And they went so far as to say that he who transgressed their words, in other words, the words of their scribes, deserved death. Close quotes, the Jewish Encyclopedia. So a true Pharisee observed the same degree of purity in his daily meals as did the priest working in the temple. The Pharisees added new restrictions to the biblical law in order to keep the people at a safe distance from forbidden ground. The Pharisees claimed the same authority, even case of error, for the decision of their scribes as for the laws of the Holy Scripture. And they went so far as to say that anyone transgressed the decisions of their scribes deserved death. So that's a little background on the Pharisees from Jewish sources. Let's turn to a Catholic commentator, the brilliant uh, Dr. Tim Gray. Quote, The Jews lived under dietary precepts that were given in the laws of Moses. One of the earmarks of Jewish identity was the kosher laws, special laws governing how Jews ate and what they could eat. For example, pork was forbidden. The Pharisees intensified the cultural significance of table fellowship and the kosher laws by demanding that the stringent food laws that govern the behavior of the temple priests be extended to govern the eating of all foods by all of Israel. Close quote. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Even though it's clear that everyone is not in the temple and that everyone is not a priest, still the Pharisees demand in effect, every time and anywhere someone sits down to eat, he must act and be treated as such. In other words, as if he's in the temple and as if he's a priest. Remember, the Pharisees claim the same authority, even in the case of error, for the decisions of their scribes as for the teaching of sacred scripture. And they went so far as to demand that anyone who transgressed these decisions deserve death. We continue. Dr. Gray. Quote, the Pharisees magnified the meaning of meals to the point where they became religious acts like prayer and fasting. One had to sit at table with the same kind of ritual purity that a priest was required to keep when serving at the altar, thus making meals a symbolic statement of Jewish identity. Given the holiness of the meal, the Pharisees held that one could not be at table with those who were unclean. Anyone not zealous in observing the Torah was excluded from the table. The Pharisees were scrupulous about what was eaten, how it was eaten, and with whom it was eaten. Meals with Gentiles and their unkosher food were forbidden. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus' presence at the table of a tax collector was worse than bad social etiquette. It was a breach of piety. Tax collectors were despised for being treacherous accomplices to the Roman Herodian authorities. 
Their inevitable contact with Gentiles made them ritually unclean, and according to the Pharisees, to eat with them would be ritually defiling. This is why the Pharisees are so scandalized by Jesus coming to a feast hosted by and filled with tax collectors and sinners. How could a respectable Jew, not to mention a rabbi and a prophet, break the social taboos and eat with religious outcasts? Did he not realize that to eat with such people was to give them tacit acceptance? Did he not realize that to eat with such people would make him unclean? Close quote. So that's a little background on the Pharisees. Now, the scriptural context of the parable. The parable of the prodigal son, as we said, is taken from the 15th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, which begins as follows. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Tim Gray. Jesus, while at a feast, is teaching a crowd of tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees, feeling that Jesus is once again undermining Jewish identity and popular piety, are scandalized. Jesus responds by telling three parables or stories that explain his practice of eating with notorious sinners. Each story climaxes with a celebration not too different from the one that has provoked the scandal. The first two stories are short and quite similar. Close quote. Luke chapter 15, verses 3 to 7. Quote, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Close quote. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Rejoice with me. We continue. Luke 15, 8 through 10. For what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Close quote. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, or one sinner who repents. Rejoice with me. Dr. Gray. In each case, there's a rejoicing and celebration when the lost is found. These brief stories set up the climactic parable, the story of the prodigal son must be remembered that Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son as an explanation for his own feasting with sinners. Luke 15, 11 and 12. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. Dr. Gray. Even Jesus' audience of tax clustered and sinners would be stunned by such a bold request. In their culture, to ask a father for one share in the inheritance was, was to say, Dad, why don't you just die? Let me get on with my life with my share in the inheritance. 
I want my inheritance, Dad, so why don't you just drop Dad? Luke 15, 12, and he divided his living between them. Dr. Gray, how does the father react? Dying to himself and dying to his property acts as if he were dead, and he gives his younger son his share of the inheritance. Luke 15, 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country. Now the phrase gathered all he had and took his journey indicates he sold anything that he couldn't carry, even though part of his inheritance may very well have been land. Dr. Gray, not many days later, the younger son took his share of the family property, sold it, took the money, and left town. Again, Jesus' audience is aghast. Selling one's family land in agrarian Israel was no light matter. It marked a betrayal or a foolishness of immense proportions. The prodigal son then journeys to a far country. In Jewish terms, to be in a far country was synonymous with exile. For the Jews, only the promised land, the Holy Land, was to be the home for God's people. The promised land was a great blessing promised to Abraham, and to live outside of the promised land was considered the worst of curses. To all ears, Jesus' story was now a story about sin and exile, a story familiar enough to every Jew. The prodigal son could not sink lower. Luke 15, 13. The younger son gathered all he had, took his journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in loose living. The prodigal son could not sink lower, and yet he does. He squandered his property in loose living. Now the Greek word here that St. Luke actually used for loose living is a sotos. What does that mean? Well, it's easy to see because in the context of Scripture, in the first letter of St. Peter, St. Peter, using the same root word, gives a very clear description of loose living. In this translation, the, the word asotos is translated, for loose living is translated profligacy. St. Peter. Let the time that has passed suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised you do not now join them in the same wild profligacy. Close quote, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, lawless idolatry, wild profligacy. For a lot of our universities, right now is spring break. What's going on? Licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, lawless idolatry, wild profligacy. A lot of our young people this very day. The Greek word here, sotos, can also be translated debauchery, which as the dictionary tells us means extreme indulgence in bodily pleasure and especially sexual pleasures. It's clear from the comment made later on by the elder brother about the prodigal son wasting his money on harlots. We continue. Luke 15, verses 14 to 16. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country and began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods of swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Dr. Gray. Famine strikes and the prodigal is destitute and hungry. Taking whatever work he can find, the prodigal eventually finds a job feeding swine. 
Surely this would be a gasp or two from the crowd, for a pig is seen as the most unclean animal to the Jews. The prodigal has defiled himself by his service to pagans and made himself unclean by his contact with prostitutes and swine. The prodigal's pride has brought him to the depths of exile and shame. Luke 15, verses 17 and 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here we have the theme of repentance, which is an absolutely necessary condition for the return of any sinner to God. And it's a key feature, as we've seen in each one of these parables. In the parable of lost sheep, we hear there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. In the parable of the lost coin, we hear there's joy before, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here we have the prodigal saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Dr. Gray. The prodigal's plight is brought into the depths of exile and shame. But a deep conversion occurs. The prodigal comes to his senses and resolves, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now there's a radical reversal in this story. By leaving home and taking his share of his inheritance, the son acted as though his father were dead. Now the son decides to act as if he were dead by intending to ask his father that he treat him as just another hired hand. Luke 15, 20. And he rose and came to his father. Dr. Gray, notice that Jesus says the prodigal rose and returned to his father. The word here for rose, anistomy, is the same word used later to describe Jesus' resurrection. The significance is clear. Repentance and returning to the father lead to a resurrection. Luke 15, 20. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Dr. Gray. While the son was on his way home, the father sees him from a distance, had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The prodigal is given the welcome, not of a servant, but of a son. The father's acceptance of his wayward son is unexpected. He gives his son a kiss, the sign of peace, even before the prodigal can speak words of repentance. Luke 15, 21 through 24. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on the hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to make merry. Dr. Gray. The father gives his son further tokens of acceptance, welcoming home with the best robe, a ring, and sandals. And as in the climax of true preceding, true preceding parables, the father calls for the fatty calf and says, Let us eat, make merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Just as in other two parables, there's a celebration in honor of the lost being found. Let us eat and make merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Given the context of the story, the point of the parable comes into stark focus. Jesus' table fellowship with sinners and tax collectors is a celebration of the lost being found. The spiritually dead 
being resurrected. The return of lost is celebrated not only on earth, but also in heaven. Jesus makes this clear when he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus says the word, saying to the Pharisees, I am feasting with sinners to celebrate their return to the Father. Jesus is playing the role of the Father, accepting the prodigal sons back into the family, the people of God. Those who were once slaves to sin are welcomed back like the prodigal son into the family of God. What's the Pharisees' response? This is the final point of the parable. Luke 15, 25 to 28. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Dr. Gray. As the older son comes home from the field, he hears the celebration and calls a servant to find out what's going on. The servant tells him the story of his youngest brother returned reconciliation with the father, but he was angry and refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him. Notice that the elder son symbolically refuses to go in, while the father comes out to where he is, hoping to bring him inside, home with the younger son. Luke 15, 29-32. But he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a kid that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours come, came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to make Mary and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the elder brother was angry and refused to go in. And in his refusal, he uses some very interesting phrases. Listen carefully. Lo, these many years I have served you, never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. He's not happy that his brother has finally come home. In fact, he doesn't even call him his brother. He calls him this son of yours. And that's not harsh enough. He says he was devoured your living with harlots. So there's no joy, there's no thanksgiving, there's no forgiveness, there's no compassion. Instead, what do we see? Anger? Self-righteousness? His concerns revolve around what he perceives to be unfairness and injustice. He's been good. Why didn't he get a party? Notice also when he speaks about his relationship with his father, he uses the words, served, served you, and obeyed your command. It doesn't sound like the most healthy relationship between a son and a father. Of course, a loving son should obey his father's commandments carefully. But the language he's using here sounds more proper to the relationship between a slave or a servant and his master than the relationship between a son who loves his father. I obey the commandments that he gives. An evidence of love? Any evidence of charity? Any evidence of devotion? No. It's all master-servant. Without charity, mercy to the undeserving is going to seem unfair. If you don't have charity, it's going to seem unfair to see mercy being given to the undeserving. It's going to offend your sense of justice. Without charity, mercy to the undeserving is quite likely to provoke anger. 
Let's do the scene one more time, but notice how the father responds to his hurt and angry elder son. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Lo, this many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with your friends. But when this, your son of your, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make Mary and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. So the elder son refuses to go in, so his father comes out to meet him, just as he ran out to his younger son. Now he's coming out, in this case, to reach out to his elder son. And that's not all. His father came out and entreated him. He's not commanding his elder son to come in. He's entreating him. He's pleading with him. He's begging him. He's imploring him to come in. But he's not commanding him. Now the father says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The translation doesn't really do justice to what the father's saying here. Because the word son that's been used through this whole chapter is a different word all of a sudden right now. The father uses a different word, technon, which means my child. And according to the lexicon, is a more familiar, more affectionate term. So by referring uh, to his son as my child, he's using more endearing speech than just calling him son. And the father continues, and all that's mine is yours. In other words, the eldest son has nothing to worry about. His inheritance is already there. The property's already been divided. The younger son took his share. The rest is going to go to the older son. So this, this party's no way a threat to his inheritance. It's truly a celebration of the return of the prodigal son who is dead and is alive, who is lost and is found. Dr. Gray. The father's words to the older son are intended by Jesus to address the Pharisees who stand outside the banquet murmuring. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in the hope the Pharisees will come and join the celebration. The story functions both as an explanation of Jesus' table fellowship and as an invitation to the Pharisees to join Jesus and the prodigals at the family table. Thus, the last lines of the parable question the Pharisees' own questioning of Jesus' table fellowship. Jesus ends the story there with the father's invitation, not telling us what the response of the older son is. This is intentional, for Jesus is leaving the door open to the Pharisees. Like the prodigal's father, Jesus invites them to come in and celebrate with him the return of the lost. Now there are layers of meaning in this parable. We'll just consider two. First, in terms of salvation history, the lesson is very clear. In the book of Exodus, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to tell him, and I quote, and you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. Close quote. So in terms of salvation history, the father, of course, symbolizes God the Father. The prodigal son stands for the Gentile nation, who after uh, the worship and knowledge of the true God, uh, after the flood turned to idolatry. We read about that in Psalm 95.5 where it says, All the gods of the Gentiles are demons. That's the scripture. So, and yet, in spite of all their sin and idolatry, in response to Christ, these same nations came into the feast. And the eldest son symbolized the Jewish people. And sadly enough, God the Father is still waiting for them to come in and join the feast. So that's at the scale of salvation history at one level. On another level, the parable refers to each one of us. 
Because to some degree, each one of us, except him, of course, our Lady have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as St. Paul says in Romans 3.23. Certainly anyone that's had the misfortune to fall into mortal sin has played the role of the prodigal, taking that priceless inheritance of sanctifying grace and squandered it, and spiritually speaking, found himself living with the swine. So the chances are pretty good that many here could probably relate to the life of the prodigal son. But there's another possibility. And in that light, we'll close with a few questions upon her. One of my best friends was the president of a motorcycle club. Definitely a believing Catholic, but like a lot of combat vets, he had his struggles. Anyhow, I buried him a few years ago. But if he were alive and showed up here on his Harley, not to raise king, but just go to Mass, how would he be received? Is a man like that going to be welcomed here? If he were to show up, whose behavior would we model ours on? The father or the eldest son? If I were to invite a girl with a ring in her nose and tats all over her arms to mass here, how will she be received? Is a woman like that going to be welcomed here? If she were to show up, whose believer would we model ours on? The father's? Or the eldest son? Those aren't just theoretical questions. In more than a few uh, tratty chapels, some of the folks present behave more like bouncers keeping the riffraff out of some swank nightclub than Catholics, happy to see what appears to be the return of a prodigal who pretty obviously needs our Lord. It's not just some theoretical statement. Some years ago, I sent a woman, a good friend of many years standing, to Mass. We talked about religion for years. She'd been away from Mass since she was 16 years old, some 30-odd years by that time. She finally decided that she wanted to go back. So I sent her to a traditional chapel. She was so excited before she went. She had to drive 180 miles one way on wintry roads up north just to get to midnight mass. She was so excited. And then she came back. She came back. She never told me what happened, but I can guess. Maybe she didn't pass uh, some kind of test with some of the sniffy people that seemed to prowl around in traditional chapels. Maybe she didn't kneel at just the right time and someone thumped her. Or maybe she made the mistake of disturbing someone 
by asking him to help her follow the missile. Who knows? I don't know. She never told me what happened. But I do know a few things. I know two things. First off, she wasn't welcomed. The Mormons would have welcomed her. The Evangelicals and Pentecostals would have welcomed her. The Charismatic Catholics would have welcomed her. But the traditionalists didn't welcome her. She wasn't welcomed. That's first. And second, bar a miracle, she'll never be back. I doubt if she'll ever go to a Catholic church again. Ever. There's no salvation outside the church. And people that call themselves traditional Catholics drove her away.